This is the Build Wealth Canada show, episode number 72. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hello and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. In this episode, we're going to cover how you can retire early or at the very least semi-retire early so they have more time for friends, family, and recreation. Now, when I was in my late 20s, my goal was to just fully retire as fast as possible because I didn't particularly like my job and I reasoned that if my portfolio was large enough, I could just live off my investments and definitely never have to work again and I'd be happy. By 32, my wife and I achieved that goal and we became financially independent, allowing us to actually live live off our investments and never work again, but that obviously came with some sacrifices. After all, we were saving over 50% of our household income to achieve this goal, and you don't get to that without limiting spending in certain areas. Perhaps the biggest twist in this story is that when I did actually fully retire in my 30s, I only lasted around five months before starting to feel incredibly unfulfilled. I reflected on why that may be, and I remember learning about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and on that final level being called self-actualization, and I looked it up, and it's defined as the complete realization of one's potential and the full development of one's abilities and appreciation for life. So the appreciation for life part I felt I had covered, but what about the part on realization of one's potential and the full development of one's abilities? How can you possibly achieve those two things if you retire early and spend all your new free time doing things like watching Netflix, playing games, going on walks, etc.? In other words, looking at it this way, I suppose it was foolish of me to think that I could achieve self-actualization, which would lead to happiness by only engaging in a life of leisure. So I really wanted to tell you this as it's something that I've learned by going through it. And my hope is that you don't make the same mistake or assumption that I made and just rush to early retirement while wrongfully assuming that a life of 100% leisure will actually bring you long-lasting fulfillment and happiness. So these days, I find that actually working part-time on the Build Wealth Canada show and the Canadian Financial Summit actually does bring me more happiness and fulfillment than just relaxing all the time. It turns out it's actually all about balance. So too much leisure leads to unfulfillment, but also too much work, even if you love what you do leads to deficiencies in other parts of your life like health, relationship with friends, family, and giving back to the community. So what can you learn from this cautionary tale? After all, looking back, doesn't my path to financial independence actually seem somewhat inefficient? Why rush to financial independence to fully retire when five months later you go back to working part-time anyway, even though you don't need the money, but you do it just for the purpose of fulfillment, happiness, and giving back to the community? So it may appear efficient because we hit that early retirement goal in our early 30s, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a better way. And if you actually go out and research this, you'll notice that many early retirees and those that are part of the FIRE movement and have actually pulled it off, they go through the same realization. It seems to be a very common theme now that I talk to more and more of people like myself that have pulled this off. So my guest this month on that note is Mark Seed, who I believe has actually figured this out and who was actually wise enough to figure this out before retiring, unlike myself, where I made that mistake and you know ended up being a little bit inefficient. Instead of rushing to achieve some giant investment portfolio number and fully retiring, never having to work again, he is instead taking what I believe is the more efficient, sustainable, and fulfilling approach to fully embracing an early semi-retirement instead of a full-stop early retirement. 
Mark has been on the show before, and he writes about his financial independence journey here in Canada over at myownadvisor.ca. I definitely recommend you check him out. A really smart guy for sure, as you'll be able to tell by our interview together. And he is very much a DIY Canadian investor like myself, has a lot of knowledge when it comes to financial planning here in Canada, and he's basically executing his own early semi-retirement. And so we have an absolute blast just geeking out on these subjects in the interview. And I truly believe that by listening in, you'll get some really great great actionable insights on how you can optimize your own financial independence and early retirement journey so that it is more efficient than the path that I took. Now, this interview was actually one that I did with Mark when I ran the Canadian Financial Summit this year. And I definitely will not be posting all the interviews from the summit on the podcast like this, as that really wouldn't be fair to all the Canadians that got the all-access pass and have you know bought access to all the videos and all the interviews and all that. But I did want to post this one in particular, as it's definitely one that you should not miss. And if this is your first time hearing about the Canadian Financial Summit, you can check it out over at CanadianFinancialSummit.com. And if you want free tickets to the online event next year, just make sure you sign up anywhere on this podcast site over at buildwealthcanada.ca. And I'll be sure to send you the free tickets when they become available for the next summit. And just an FYI, when you sign up, you also get a free guide on the top investment and personal finance tools that I personally use here in Canada so that you can better optimize your own finances and your investments. So that link again is buildwealthcanada.ca. .ca. Sign up anywhere there on their front page for free tickets to next year's online event and to immediately receive the full guide on the top investment and personal finance tools that I personally use here in Canada. All right. So with that said, let's get into the interview. Mark, welcome to the summit. Thanks. Uh, nice to be back. Uh, long time no chat. Yeah, always great to have you here, whether it's on the podcast or on the summit. Uh, just in case somebody hasn't heard of you before, or hasn't been on your blog, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your site and just for anybody that hasn't heard of you before? Yeah, thanks, Cornell. I mean, uh, I've been a DIY investor now for, gosh, I'm showing my age, but probably about 20 years now. And I've probably been an active blogger for about 10 or 11 of those years. I, I blogged anonymously for many years. I, I really didn't let my personal you know, work life collide with the blog life. But I, I think in the last you know four or five years since we've been talking uh, about money stuff, whether it's podcasts or or what have you, you know, I've basically told people a little bit more about my life and and pu- published that on on myownadvisor.ca where I do blog. Uh, I write once or twice a week. I write about all my musings, whether it's uh, you know investing in dividend paying stocks how to invest in low-cost ETFs, which I own as well. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, my hybrid investing and, you know, how I'm formulating things for semi-retirement in a few years. But, you know, like everybody, I also um, think about and, and then I write about on my blog, uh, you know, travel hacks, travel tips, some budgeting stuff that we're working through, where to bet the, you know, where to get the best car insurance, you know, the list goes on. Because, you know, basically every day we all have money stuff we've got to deal with, right? And, and it really just depends on, on how we want to go about it and how to optimize that. So I've been very fortunate to, to talk with, you know, find people like yourself and been featured in the Globe and Mail and Winnipeg uh, Free Press, uh, Money Sense, um, and written some Money Saver articles as well. So, you know, just really happy to share my journey on uh, myownadvisor.ca, uh, interact with like-minded people and, you know, learn from readers as well because uh, um, it's always great to interact with like-minded people. Mm-hmm. For sure. I love having you on like on the podcast and just chatting in general because me, myself, I would consider myself a sort of ETF index investor purist. That's pretty much all that I do as mm. far as investing goes. And then you, on the other hand, are more of like you already alluded to that a little bit 
in a second ago, you're more of a hybrid investor where, yes, you do the passive index ETFs like what I do, but you also, at least the last time you spoke, you were still doing some dividend investing as well. And so for sure, there's some people that are purists like myself. And then I find there's other people that are like, yeah, we like the ETF passive, but I also like to do a little bit of dividend stocks. And then there's others where, you know, maybe they'll take 10% of their portfolio and they'll just do that. They'll do the active investing with that 10% because they enjoy that kind of work. So I, I love having you on because with people like yourself, experts like yourself, we really get a nice broader approach and people can sort of pick and choose, you know, which approach is right for them. And they get to see the entire scope of things as opposed to just hearing me talk about passive investing nonstop. You know, Cornell, it's, it is, I mean, passive investing, um, it's a great way to go. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more, but you know, it's, it's a bit of a set and forget of sorts, right? You, you have all the ETFs now that you can buy. You have to no worries about rebalancing. You put your money in and the whole asset accumulation phase is fairly easy. But for, for the viewers, um, for the summit, I've gravitated to dividend paying stocks mainly in Canada because, um, you know, there's just basically few players and, uh, a f- you know, few market sectors. So I feel for the most part, you know, whether it's a few financial companies, telco companies and what have you, they dominate the, the space. They pay healthy dividends. Uh, they provide a nice income stream. And so it's a little bit easier, I would say, to be a, a dividend investor or stock investor in Canada. It doesn't mean it's foolproof. It doesn't mean it's without risk. But that's where I personally feel it's a good fit for my behavior and my risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it's worth mentioning too that if somebody is investing, let's say they have their RSP TFSA filled up and now they have money that they're putting into their taxable accounts, there is that preferential tax treatment on Canadian dividend paying companies for the eligible dividend. So there is that extra little thing that the government's basically created in their tax code where you do have that extra kind of incentive to do it there too. Although you can get that with ETFs as well, but still. You can. It's just um, it's a harder to find those kind of more purist uh, Canadian ETFs. There's a couple. I think iShares has some that are very tax efficient because they invest in all the companies that I probably invest in directly. But you're right. The dividend tax credit in a taxable account is a very good incentive to buy those Canadian stocks. And, and I, I do that. Mm-hmm, for sure. And so where are you right now in terms of your financial independence, retire early journey? Yeah, I mean, if I had to put a percentage to it, probably about 70% of the way there. So we're, we're definitely getting there. Um, and I've, I, I would say we've taken a, maybe a slower path to financial independence than maybe we, we could have. Um, in that, you know, we recently moved from uh, kind of the outskirts of Ottawa back into the city that cost us a little bit of extra money, but we were fine with that decision. And so I guess on that note, you know, what I, one of the things I try to write about on uh, my own advisor is really trying to fit your financial life with, with some of your values. Um, because if you want to live in the city and you want to spend a little bit more on a house and you want to downsize or whatever, there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make you a bad person. Um, you just need to make sure that those uh, financial means, the income to get there are kind of aligned with your values and what makes you happy. So uh, certainly I could have been maybe uh, more financially independent sooner and maybe in my late thirties, or early forties, but you know, we're definitely getting there. My goal is really to have an income from dividends and ETFs uh, to live from per se so that I really don't have to touch the capital in the early years and you know we can talk about strategies for that and what I'm thinking about and and I've had a long-standing goal of you know earning a certain level of income from my taxable account and my TFSAs because I feel you know that money coupled with my RSP withdrawals coupled with uh, maybe some part-time work will, will basically be enough to cover some needs but also some wants and so 
Um, we're definitely getting there. It's uh, I call it a get wealthy eventually strategy, to be honest, because it's not our, a get rich quick scheme that we're on, but it's a financial plan with dividends and low cost and ETFs that definitely works for us. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure we're going to get there soon enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like how you bring up the approach of that you can achieve financial independence early, but you don't necessarily have to go to that extreme where you're cutting expenses, everything to the bone, you're sacrificing lifestyle just to get there in the shortest possible time. Because I find, at least in from what I've seen in the financial independence, retire early, so the FIRE community, mm-hmm. a very common approach that I see with others who have done it or are doing it is, yeah, they'll just take that extreme approach and just cut everything to the bone. And you know, their, their goal is to live on, let's say, 30000 a year, 40000 a year tops, you know, that kind of a scenario. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what I do, right? Right? So I, I'm okay with that. But there's also, I think, to get a broader perspective, there are other ways of doing it. There are ways, well, maybe you want to live on more than $40,000 a year, and that's okay, and you can still retire early. You just have to plan around that and factor that in that you are looking to have more money in your early retirement. So it's not like there's just this one approach. It's very much a custom thing, and I see that you are a good example of how you, know, you can find some middle ground as opposed to going from one extreme where you're saving a ridiculous amount but really sacrificing lifestyle or to the other one where you're blowing everything and aren't saving anything. So there is that hybrid for sure. Yeah, and I, and I think you know me a little bit and, and certainly um, got you know quite a few passionate readers on my site. I really try to espouse uh, to the extent I can a really balanced approach. I guess that's a good word to use, right? And I also want financial flexibility later on in my life so that I can pull different levers, if you will, to draw down my portfolio. And and I know we'll talk about that a little bit too, but I think that's where it comes from is I want to balance, you know, I don't want to take on too much debt because that could be crippling and, and, uh, and not too fun to, to kind of uh, work through those anxious times. I don't want to take on uh, lots of leverage because it's not fit for my DNA. I don't feel like I need to scrimp and save and be call myself retired in my late 30s a few years ago because I can call myself retired because I'll probably still work. So yeah, I mean, I, I love the fire movement. I'm I'm uh, I think I'm an advocate of all the principles that it espouses. It's it's about you know matching your spending with your values, probably making sure you're optimizing your money, making sure you're making good decisions that are in the best interests of you as a as a investor and not necessarily to mass marketing necessarily. So there's lots of great principles that I think that come with fire. But I would say I'm definitely more of an advocate of the FI part of financial uh, the fire movement so the financial independence because honestly for the most part you know what 30 or 40 something is going to be flat out retired forever right maybe they'll write books they'll do speaking engagements if they've gotten there already they're going to have side hustles hobbies these these folks are probably retired early because they're entrepreneurs at, at heart and so you know and that and that's excellent that's great um, they start businesses and they do other fun things with their time. So to be honest, you have to have a purpose. No, you know, nobody's going to be sitting around just putting their feet up for 60 years, right? So, you know, definitely a fan of the the FI part, not so much RE. And there's lots of factors that, that go into to why I, but certainly, you know, happy to be on the FI journey for sure. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Do you know what interest rate you're getting on any cash sitting in your checking and savings accounts? There's a huge range in what the different banks are offering in Canada. And at the time of this recording, when I compared what I get at my bank versus the other banks in Canada, I find that I'm getting anywhere from double to over 30 times more interest, which is basically free money. So the bank that I use is EQ Bank. It's free to bank with them. There are no monthly fees, no minimum balances to get that higher rate. I've been using them since 2016 and I've never had any issues. They've got unlimited free Interact e-transfers, which 
which I find super convenient for sending anybody money at no charge. And they have a super convenient way of sending money internationally too. And the money isn't locked in, so you can actually take money out at any time, just like a regular checking account, but you're not incurring any fees in the process. So I keep my entire emergency fund and spending money with them. Basically, just about everything of mine that isn't being invested in ETFs goes directly into my EQ Bank account to earn me that higher interest. And I've been using them, like I said, since 2016, even before they became a sponsor of the show. So if you are going to sign up for free with them, please use the link buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. That's buildwealthcanada.ca ca slash the letter e and the letter q it's a huge help and using that specific link helps keep the show and almost everything else on the build wealth canada site free and as a thank you when you sign up with them for free using my link specifically if you send me any confirmation email that you get from them i'll send you my full free guide on all the investments that i personally own and buy along with an in-depth explanation on why i chose each one so there are thousands of investment options out there some incredibly expensive with ridiculous hidden fees so this guy will at least help you narrow things down. And these are all the investments that have massively helped. My wife and I retire in our 30s and they are the investments that I continue to hold and live off of today. So to get the free guide, just sign up for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. And it has to be through that specific link. And then forward me any confirmation email that you get from EQ to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and I'll send you the full guide for free. So thank you so much for using that link to support the show and enjoy the free banking and the high interest rate on your savings. Yeah, you definitely have that foresight. As opposed to me, I didn't. I just thought I want to do the fire thing, retire early, all that. So we basically rushed to fire mm-hmm. and, and we got there and it was great. And yeah, the whole intent was, okay, and then I don't have to work at all anymore. I'm not going to work. It's going to be relaxing. Uh, and then I basically, la- I laugh now at myself because I basically lasted five months <laughs> before <laughs> before I started getting itchy. And, you know, it, it just, I'm, I was reflecting on this actually the other day because I was reading on your blog, you had a whole thing about how what you just said, if you're in your 30s and you have that kind of temperament where you are actually going to really push hard and try to retire that or get become financially independent that early, then you're also probably the type of person that's not going to be content you know, sitting on the beach all day or watching Netflix or playing video games all day in your retirement because that's just not how you're wired, right? And so I, I definitely can now say from experience <laughs> that, that that's very true. Uh, and so that's why, you know, I took over the summit. I still have the podcast as well. So I, I agree hundred um, percent is, and I was reflecting on it yesterday and it, it got me thinking about in university, you know, you learn about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, maybe even in high school, you learn about that. And mm-hmm. I remember the, and I know there was like some criticisms and people, you know, critique that theory and all that, but bottom line is that the top of the pyramid, there was that um, self-actualization, right? Was Correct. kind of the highest area you want to get to. And then what I was thinking about was, well, you don't get to self-actualization by watching Netflix for six hours a day. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it does, we're not, humans aren't wired that kind of way. And so if you have financial independence, technically you should be striving for that self-actualization and you're not going to get that by basically just being uh, lazy really and just doing nothing all day. You're not going to feel fulfilled and you're going to look for something more that satisfies those different things, right? Because you've got the money thing taken care of, but there's other components like the social, the creativity, uh, the having an outlet for your creativity, intellectual stimulation, all of that. So that was a big aha moment that I had the other day where it makes sense that I actually wasn't feeling fulfilled being retired in my early 30s after five months because 
the life of leisure isn't the whole picture. It doesn't satisfy you, right? So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's totally the thing. I think I think from what I've seen, at least from the 30 and 40 something set that I interact with a little bit on the FI front, yourself included and, and a few others in Canada and the US for that matter, uh, predominantly is that you do need to have purpose. You do need to have that social and emotional connection. Uh, I totally agree. You need to follow your passions. I think what FI teaches you a little bit is is it puts the discipline and the principles in place so that if you do want to do other things later on in your life, you've, you've got the blueprint to do it. And I think that's the beauty of the FI movement, at least, is that here are hardworking people who have a goal, who have know how to measure those objectives and, and work through a plan. And now you've worked through one thing. It's about continuous improvement and kind of keeping you know, that, that blueprint in place. And then you can figure out, well, what's next with my life? Well, what's next and what else do I want to do? And, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And kudos to the people who have achieved like yourself, some form of, of financial independence very early in life, because you have to be very driven to do so. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. I found what it did for us is, or at least for me personally, psychologically was once we hit that fine number, it gave me the security that I needed to pursue some of these passion projects like I've always wanted to run you know my a business and just just not having to work for someone and just do things for myself uh, and but it's scary to do because we have two children uh, mm-hmm. my wife's a full-time stay-at-home mom so I mean when you're not fi and you're supporting a whole family it's scary to say okay I'm gonna quit this stable salary job and I'm yeah. gonna pursue my passion of having my own business and that's what I'm going to do, right? It, at least for me, that was, I guess I'm risk averse in that way where I found that really risky. And so once we hit FI, it became like, hey, I can actually do this now and not be scared that the kids aren't going to have enough food, <laughs> you know, aren't going to have enough food on the table. And so it kind of gave me that freedom. And I find now by actually working on the summit, by expanding the podcast even further, I'm actually happier doing that now than I was in those five months where I was just, watching TV, you know, playing video games, just, you know, doing the typical kind of, uh, I've heard the term, you know, honeymoon, uh, retirement honeymoon phase, right? right? And then eventually that passes and you're like, okay, what's next with my life? Because this clearly isn't satisfying, right? So for sure. Totally, totally. Yeah. So you have taken all that into account and it sounds like you're essentially saying, I'm not going to do a full retirement. I'm going to do a semi-early retirement. Uh, can you talk about that and how are you structuring your portfolio for your early semi-retirement? Yeah, it's a great question because I think it, you know, I've, I've said this on my site and I'll probably continue to say it over the years, you know, personal finance is very personal, right? Um, but I think there's some common things that a lot of investors should at least consider. And so I'll kind of, I'll lay those out. So first of all, you know, fortunate to have a defined benefit pension at work. It's not the gold-plated pension that from the federal government or other types of collective agreements or institutions or what have you, but you know, it is quite good and I'm very thankful for it. So for me, Cornell, I've always considered my pension a big bond because it is tied to some of those uh, large bargaining units and and some of those uh, institutional frameworks uh, that the pension plans are tied to. So by having a defined benefit, my my benefit at the end is defined. So I kind of know what that income is going to be at some point, albeit with maybe some early withdrawal penalties or something. So for me, having that big bond, uh, and I do have an article about that on my site, what it allows me to do is take a little bit more risk with my personal portfolio. So that's why I do have the Canadian and US dividend paying stocks for the dividend tax credit as well. But I also invest in low cost ETFs for for growth and, and capital appreciation. So with that kind of mix, I, I've started to sit back and started to think about my semi-retirement plans in the next few years. And I thought, okay, well, what's the right portfolio mix that I need to sustain this? And, and so how is that going to look? So my thinking is, 
I'm going to take a bit of a modified bucket approach. So a typical bucket approach would be, you know, maybe a bit of cash, maybe it's a six months or a year's worth of expenses for emergencies or rainy days, or just when the, you know, stock market goes through something horrific, right? Then there's a wedge or, or maybe a bit of a security blanket in terms of a GIC ladder. Maybe it's a one or two or three year GIC ladder. And then the rest is really in equities or a mix of, you know, a bias to maybe an 80-20 or a 70-30 equity or bond split. Mm -hmm. I've changed that up a little bit because I have that defined pension such that I think my three buckets are are probably pretty um, secure in that I'll have about one year's worth of cash to enter semi-retirement with. That's going to cover off, you know, emergencies around the condo, um, any, any bad market for 12 months. If I had to ratchet down my spending, that year's worth of cash could probably last a year and a half, maybe 18 months. I'm going to continue to have my mix of Canadian stocks and um, dividend paying uh, stocks and, and the like from Canada and the US. That's going to provide me with hopefully a fairly tangible income stream. And then I'm also going to have my, my third bucket, which is my low cost ETF. So predominantly in my RSP and I'm going to basically invest in the US market, um, any Canadian equivalent. And I'm basically going to get a bunch of growth out of that. So my thinking is I'll have the cash as a security blanket and I'll basically live off the distributions of my dividends that are, you know, my dividend paying stocks, as well as the distributions for my uh, low cost ETFs. I'll probably work part time. Um, so like we were talking about earlier, maybe I'll part, you know, do some part time work in the first three to five years and just kind of see how that all plays out because I can stay in the workforce. If I feel I haven't saved enough for whatever reason, our needs are higher, our wants are higher, I can probably always go back into the workforce. And if it works out, then, you know, we can talk about sequence of returns risk and other things. But if, if things work out in my favor, then, you know, kudos, I'm in semi retirement and there's nothing wrong with that. So that's kind of my thinking is to take a bit of a bucket of uh, a because I think it makes a lot of logical sense, but it also has a bias to, to long-term growth and, and equity and capital appreciation. So you mentioned having one year cash set aside for the expenses. Now, I've seen different ways of setting that up. One is pe- some people will just say, okay, if I need 40000 a year of spending, I'm just going to have forty grand sitting there in a high interest savings account and I'm basically done with that bucket. There's also the other approach, which is what I do, where, okay, let's actually factor in all the different income sources that are coming in, like the dividends, like any you know interest or whatever the case may be, any yep. sort of re- government benefits, if, if you get those, anything like that. So basically reliable income that you know you're going to get for sure or, or with a very high degree of certainty. And so let's say you're saying I need 40K, but let's say you know 20K is going to be covered by those reliable income sources on an annual basis, then you really only need 20K, right, in order to fit your your $40,000 spending to have that one-year bucket taken care of. Which approach do you take, or is there some third one I haven't thought of that you prefer? <laughs> you know, I actually have a bias to the to the first one a little bit, because it kind of aligns to my conservative, maybe, nature. Uh, I am uh, invested in, in dividend-paying stocks, because there is risk there, of course. As, as there are with any equities for that matter. But I, I have a bias to just kind of keeping the cash in a, I don't know if the high interest savings account uh, exists anymore, Cornell. Maybe a, maybe it's an adequate interest savings account or a modest <laughs> savings account. I don't know what they're called anymore. The, the high is a relative term, yeah, because, okay, of, the, fair because enough. of how crazy these interest rates have it's, gone. Yeah. It's, it's relative for 2020 days, right? So no, kidding aside, I mean, I think I'm, I'm more of a bias to kind of have a bit of money. I let it set aside. It'll accrue some interest and I'll kind of draw on it when I need to. And what I will use is probably the safety of the distributions and the dividends that are flowing in as, as my fairly reliable income stream. 
And um, again, I'll be working part-time, at least that's the plan. So the combination of having some cash on the side, having a fairly reliable income stream from the portfolio, not touching the capital at all in the early years, and also having some part-time income, you know, those are three levers I feel I could pull in any one or two years worth of window. Because, you know, people aren't, you know, retired or otherwise, you're probably not, as much as we say we won't watch the stock market, you're probably not going to live in a bubble and you probably won't not read the news about how things are going with COVID or, you know, what interest rates are doing. So you're always going to be going through kind of a replant, I feel. And so it's important to kind of get in the habit of that when you get into semi-retirement or full-on retirement because you'll have a lot of lead time or racetrack to figure out what levers you can pull in your own portfolio to kind of make sense of things. So that's kind of the plan for me is to really set aside that money as an emergency fund, really not touch it and rely on some of the other income streams and part-time work to, to make a go of it in a few years. And what I really want to stress to listeners and viewers of this is that if you take Mark's approach, you can actually do a semi-retirement way quicker than if you were to take the approach of I'm just going like what you typically see in the fire community where people will say okay I'm going to take let's say 3.25% or 4% there's a whole debate around that but I'm yep. going to take this you know static amount and that's going to and so to do that I need let's say a million dollars or one, you know 1.5 million dollars and I could see how that can seem overwhelming intimidating very unmotivating to people because if you're just getting started and you're making, you know, if you're fresh out of school, let's say you're not making that much money yet, your career is about to go you know, an upper trajectory. To hear something like, okay, I need $1.5 million or $1 million to fully retire, I mean, it almost, you almost want to pull, throw your hands in the air saying, how the heck is this possible? I'm saving like $100. You know, from every paycheck, I'm never going to get to a million, and so it can be very demotivating uh, because people might say, "Well, I need a million dollars because that's the number that's usually thrown around in the at least in the early retirement community." But with your approach, you can make that number so much smaller if you are saying, "Hey, I'm willing to work part time," and so that's going to provide me with a really big cushion, and it drastically, drastically reduces the amount of how big your portfolio has to be to, to pull it off. So, um, yeah, so I'm really glad you mentioned that approach and I think it's really worth highlighting 100%. Yeah, I just, I, I really think that the thing that I've learned about myself over the last few years certainly is, you know, while I want to be busy and while I, you know, I want to work on my own terms, you know, so I call it FIWOOT, right? So financial independence working on own terms. Mm-hmm. For me personally to kind of go cold turkey, if you will, and and jump out of the workforce with both feet and just assume that everything's going to be perfect and happy and I'm going to know exactly what the future holds, I, I think I'm kidding myself. So uh, I just know enough about myself that why do that when I have other options available? For sure. It's not like you have to go from one extreme of working for someone, working long hours to all of a sudden working not at all and then dealing with that transition and all the stress that comes with it. I saw some study how they were saying that's actually one of the biggest stressors retirees face in their lives when they look back is is when they actually entered retirement because all of a sudden you're it's such a drastic change to go from especially if you're let's say a dual income family and you're used to that steady those two steady paychecks every two weeks and all of a sudden that drops to pretty much zero and now you've got these other income sources you have to learn to pull money from and manage and not run out of money i mean it's a stressful thing so i like your approach about okay well we can actually do this early semi-retirement and we're actually easing into it, which I'm sure psychologically is going to provide you with a lot less stress 
and it gives you a lot of flexibility and it massively decreases the sequence of returns risk, I would say, you know, if you do have a really bad sequence in the early years, which we'll, which we'll get to in a sec because some people might not know what sequence of returns risk is. So we'll, we'll touch on that. Before we go there, though, when you have that money that's invested in ETFs for sort of that longer portion of your bucket and you're actually withdrawing some of those, you're taking out some of those capital gains to live off of, what's the structure that you like to go with that? Because I've seen you mention the variable percentage withdrawal strategy. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to maybe talk about that a little bit for anybody not familiar, because once again, we hear so much about the 4% rule, which is the static thing. And that's not necessarily the best fit for everyone, myself included. I don't, I don't, I do variable percentage withdrawal as well. So can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of the variable percentage withdrawal because the essence of it is that the withdrawals will basically automatically adjust, if you will, based on the returns of the market. So let's say we have a really good year. Well, then, you know, if we have another good year after that, then you can probably take a little bit more money from your portfolio because when we think about, you know, sequence of returns, it works both ways, right? There's a sequence of returns where things work really well for consecutive years. There could also be sequence of returns for things that work not so well for a few years. And we saw that around the great, you know, uh, financial crisis. So very percentage withdrawal really is allowing you to kind of pick a start date for retirement, an end date, whether it be age 95, 100, or, or what have you, and then look at your portfolio value and say, okay, based on that amount of money, I can probably draw down that portfolio at a reasonable percentage and basically go somewhat to, to, to zero. Because the challenge with the 4% rule is if you're just using a flat line withdrawal rate, and again, we'll use a hundred, you know, or sorry, a million dollars. Because uh, that's the number that's typically floated out in the fire community. Is that's a really good number to adhere to, and it's going to pay you forty thousand dollars a year, which is four percent of that for the rest of your life, uh, indexed to a, you know a little bit of inflation. The challenge with that rule is that it's while it's very safe, hence the word, you know, you have a, a high degree of certainty that you're not going to outlive your money for thirty years at least for the four percent rule. The challenge with that rule is you actually may end up with through the sequence of positive returns three or four X in terms of the amount of money that your portfolio is worth. So for me, when I think about what we're working hard and saving more, uh, saving for right now, the challenge with the the 4% rule is while I could go to zero in 30 years, there's a really high degree of chance, like 50% that I'm going to have three times more of the money in another 30 years. And I'm going to be 70 something and I'm not going to know what to do with the money. So maybe I have to gift it and do some generational wealth and that may be all fine and good, but you may end up actually with a lot more money than you think you should uh, using the 4% rule. So very percentage kind of rolling back is allowing you to say, okay, how much of my portfolio can I take out on a systematic basis every year based on seasonally how the market is, is adjusting. And I think it's a great way to go because we all live with dynamic uh, spending, right? Some months we may spend a little bit more, some months we may, uh, may spend a little bit less. So by using the tools, and you can find the, the post on my site, if you just do a quick Google Vera percentage withdrawal, minor advisor, it'll come up right probably at the top of the Google search. Um, but uh, you can look at boggleheads and various wikis on variable percentage withdrawal. There's free calculators for it. What you'll find is it allows you to spend a little bit more in good years, it allows you to spend a little bit uh, less in bad years or, or forces you maybe to ratchet things down. But then at the end of the day, you're not going to outlive your money and you're not going to be, you know, um, you know, working at some uh, meager job in your 80s to make, uh, you know, pennies or nickels rub together. So to me, it's a very good approach that allows um, and accounts for how the market's performing, but also how you're spending. For sure. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned that, how that's the reason you didn't go with the 4% rule. 
was because in those you are more likely basically to end up with more money than you know how to spend or, or want to necessarily spend if you don't get unlucky, essentially. And that was my situation as well. I remember when I was going into all the models and crunching the numbers and all that, mm. I thought, okay, this is a, I'm safe with using 4% or you know, 4% or 3.25 or whatever the percentage you want to use. But then when I ran the financial models, it's like, wait a minute, if I actually get like sort of the an average case, not even like an amazing stock market returns, but just an average case, I'm going to end up with a ridiculous amount of money. And that just sounds very inefficient because <laughs> you're, you're growing this massive portfolio. You had a good run in the markets. You're allowed to spend it sustainably, but it's like, no, 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 stop. You can't. Let's, we have to stick with the 4% rule because five years ago, we said, I'm going to take 40% out and that's it. And even though the markets have been doing great, you're still only allowed to take that out plus inflation. And so I just, I felt, okay, this, this can't be efficient. It, I it, it's a lot. I personally also like it a lot better where, okay, if I'm taking out 4%, fine, but it's going to be a, whatever my portfolio value is at that time. Uh, and then I, that way, you know, if the markets are doing great, you maybe take that extra vacation, whatever the case may be. If the markets are doing horribly, like 2008 financial crisis levels, okay, so we're not going to take our trip to Europe that year. Let's save it for when the markets recover. Maybe we just do stuff locally, something like that. I don't think that's a really big sacrifice. And you get so you get so much better use of your money by being flexible instead of just putting a stake in the ground saying, no, $40,000 $40, a year plus inflation is all I'm ever going to spend in retirement. It just, yeah, the inefficiency bothered me a lot. <laughs> the inefficiency bothers me a lot. You know this well, Cornell, because you're, you're living through this right now and I'm, I'm ready to embark on it soon enough. Just not sensible to think that you're always going to spend this amount of money this month, this quarter, year after year after year. Life does not work that way. If life was that systematic and that logical, you know, it would be too robotic and it would be downright boring. So, the reality is, is you need tools like VPW, like very percentage withdrawal, in my opinion, to give you kind of the insights that that spending and also your portfolio returns will be very dynamic. And that could be with your 100% equity portfolio. It could be with your 70-30 mix of stocks and bonds. You know, even if you're more conservative and you want, you know, much more GICs, maybe you have pensions, maybe you have some generational wealth, you have an inheritance, maybe you can certainly spend a lot less but it allows you that financial flexibility. And I think, how do I design my semi-retirement around the financial flexibility to give me the best chance of not only spending my money that I've worked really hard to save, but also um, allowing me to draw it down in a reasonable manner where you know I'm not, I'm not passing anything on or, or I'm not leaving too much on the table. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. I wanted to give a big thanks to 5-Hour Research for giving Build Wealth Canada listeners a free one-year digital subscription to Canadian Money Saver magazine, Canada's largest personal finance magazine. And you can get that by signing up for free 30-day access to all of 5 Eyes investment research. There's no credit card required or anything like that. And when you sign up for free, you'll receive access to over 70 company reports, which is perfect if you like to invest in individual stocks, maybe you like dividend stocks, for example. So you'll get some suggestions on those. You get to see some good research on that. You'll also get three optimized model portfolios and answers to over 90,000 investing questions, along with the ability to ask your stock 
ask any of questions directly to Five Eyes research team of analysts. Now, the team at Five Eyes don't sell any investments. They don't get any commissions or bonuses from suggesting stocks and ETFs to you. So I've been a longtime partner with them as they are one of the very, very few companies in Canada that are truly unbiased when it comes to the research and suggestions on stocks and ETFs and that aren't just you know telling you what you want to hear so that you buy investments through them so that they can earn their hefty commissions. So you can get free 30-day access to all the research and resources over at Build wealthcanada.ca slash research. And as a thank you for trying them out, you'll receive a free one-year digital subscription to Canadian Money Saver magazine, Canada's largest personal finance magazine. So you can buy one issue of the magazine on store shelves for five bucks, or you can get it free for an entire year. Plus, you'll get access to all past issues of the magazine too, just by checking out Five Eyes Research over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash research. So I encourage you to check Five Eye out. It's a great place to get some truly unbiased insights on your investments, especially if there is an ETF or stock that you are considering and you want an unbiased opinion from a professional, trained financial analyst that isn't there to sell you anything. So you get free access for 30 days and I'm sure you'll learn an absolute ton. All right. So again, that link is buildwealthcanada.ca slash research to basically get free access to both. And now let's get back to the show. I think an important point to mention as well is during different life stages, your spending can vary quite drastically. So if, for example, right now, let's say you do the early retirement thing like we did and you have kids, well, we have kids' expenses that we have to do. If eventually when you have an empty nest, okay, you don't have those kids' expenses anymore. So your spending is going to be a lot less in theory, assuming the kids, you know, go on their own and are, are assume they leave, assuming they leave. <laughs> right? But I mean, that's a that's a pretty big deal. Like, okay, we went from raising two kids and paying for them and all this stuff, and now that's gone. So now, our how much money we need to be financially independent and be semi-retired or fully retired is all of a sudden a lot less. And then yep. I've seen studies as well, uh, which are would basically show that, okay, when someone is more traditionally retired, let's say you're 65 years old plus, it's not like your spending is the same every year in retirement. Usually there's different phases of the traditional retirement too, where, okay, in your mid to late 60s, that's maybe when you do more of your traveling because you're more likely to be healthy. You have the willingness to travel. It's more fun. And then, you know, then you kind of get into the, and then after that, things start slowing down a little bit. Like when you're 95, let's say, are you really going to be doing a scuba diving trip in the Cayman Islands? Probably not, right? Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. And so it's, I would say, yeah, foolish to just make this broad assumption, like you said, where, okay, a 40,000 plus inflation is what the 4% will says. I'm going to do that every year for the rest of my life. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. And I think that's why I've gravitated to the plan that, that we're on is, you know, in my mid 40s ish in that range still, you know, I, I look at the next few years and the next few decades as, as you know, hopefully knock on wood, I, I continue to have uh, health and, um, you know, all the benefits that go with that. So to me, um, you know, this is the time to kind of optimize and maximize that travel if we can do it or just do things in the local area in Ottawa or, uh, in the region that I really, really enjoy and try to find, again, back to that balance and flexibility that offers me that. For sure. Yeah. And then because you're financially independent, you can, if you are, since you are working part-time, you can then take that money and use that as your travel, you know, to do those extra trips, that kind of thing. It gives you that flexibility as opposed to taking that trip and then 
thinking, okay, I hope the markets are doing okay, that kind of, you know, and it's always kind of on the back of your mind. At least that's how we've structured it is with, with any sort of passion projects income that we generate. It's, that's kind of our, okay, this is for to take the kids, tra- to travel some with the kids, you know, get some good, get some good experiences while we're young and healthy uh, and use that for. And then the portfolio is there to basically make sure that all those essentials are covered, all those essential expenses are covered with, you know, a little bit of fun sprinkled in, but nothing, sure. nothing too crazy. So that's the way, at least that's the way that we, that I currently look at it. Yeah. And um, what's interesting about you and I is we're, we're going about it a little bit differently. And obviously there's a, you know, a couple, few age, a few years of, of age gap difference, but at the end of the day, we're, we're kind of both arriving at the same conclusion in terms of having that base income that we know we can rely on. And then, you know, doing passion projects or other things that, that are adding the extras in life. And, and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I think, I think if, if folks want to choose that particular path, um, um, there's many ways to kind of get there. For sure, for sure. So you, we talked about variable percentage withdrawal, that strategy. Mm-hmm. There's different ways of, of structuring it. So there's different spending floors and spending ceilings you can do. You can incorporate it with your bucket strategy. So many different variations out there of that. How yeah. are you personally thinking of structuring your variable percentage withdrawal process or strategy? Yeah, so I, I guess to answer the question, I'm kind of thinking it more from a um, – more from a um, – I would say uh, what order to draw down what accounts. I, I think I'm looking that way. So there will be the overall portfolio value. So again, if you if you've seen the the VPW um, uh, spreadsheet or calculator, uh, check it out. It's very easy to use, very intuitive. So I would put in my you know portfolio value there, and I would say, okay, what what some of the parts is going to get me to that forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year or whatever I want to spend. So when I look at, okay, if that's the first year I want to spend this and maybe the next year if the markets are good, I'll spend uh, a little bit more or if they're not so good, I'll spend a little bit less. But let's let's use that as a ballpark, somewhere in the range of 40 to 60 a year, including covering all basic needs, but also some extras and wants in life. What I'll try to do, Cornell, is I'm going to say, okay, looking at that range of money, where can I draw that money from? Where is that money going to come from? Because this is what I want to spend, but i got to figure out how I'm going to actually get it. So then what I've done is some modeling and, you know, various spreadsheets and there's other calculators out there as well in terms of, you know, RIF and RSP drawdown calculators, uh, a kudos, a small plug to taxtips.ca, no affiliation, but menu of, of stuff and calculators to use. Um, but there's lots of free tools out there. And what you can do is you can say, okay, now I know kind of what I need to spend, where the source is going to come from. Maybe for me personally, I'll probably draw on my RSP first. Um, the reason I'm going to do that is because, uh, it's tax deferred money, as you know. And so I'm thinking, well, why don't I reduce that tax liability that is my RSP in my 50s and 60s? Because if I defer CPP, kind of pension plan or old age security later on, and I actually got some numbers to share with people, which is interesting. You know, that way I'm reducing that tax liability. I'm not going to get bumped up to a new tax bracket artificially, or it's not like I don't see these things coming. So my thinking is the drawdown would be Assuming I want to spend this much money in that range, I'll probably draw down our RSPs first. I'll probably draw down, uh, you know, live off the dividends in the taxable account, keep those rolling. But at some point, I'll, I'll start standing on the taxable account. And then probably I'm going to keep the TFSAs quote until the end, um, just because it's tax-free money, as long as the government doesn't change the rules. And who, who knows happen, uh, what happens with COVID or anything else. You know, that's a whole other conversation about what they may or may not do with our tax code. But I, I could see leaving the TFSAs compounding tax-free distributions such that they're not income tested. Um, so they don't count against my, my income in CPP and OAS. 
So I'll, I'll be allowing myself to draw down those, um, you know, dividends or distributions from the TFSA tax-free in my senior years, you know, my, maybe my 70s or 80s. And I'm also, by that strategy, I've also, you know, if I decide to defer CPP or OAS, I've actually got inflation protection benefits with CPP and OAS, such that I'm always going to get a little bump with CPI or anything else. And the other thing is, as I get older, I'm an avid and passionate DIY investor right now. I have no idea what type of investor I may be in my 70s or 80s. I may want to just put everything in a low-cost index fund, maybe have a few stocks, and that's it. I don't want to worry about it. I don't want to think about it. I won't want my wife to worry about it through powers attorney or whatever. You know, I want to just rely mostly on uh, you know my pension and my government benefits. And if I have a bit of slush money in the TFSA, so be it. So I'm trying to think ahead about how I want to structure my portfolio so I really don't have to think about it. But I'm also thinking in the early years about how to get rid of the tax liability that is my RSP because I've had a good job. I've put money in at a higher income year. I'm going to get the best net benefit out of the RSP when I take my money out in a low income year. And then how do I mix that around with my taxable income, any part-time work, and arguably, I'm probably going to keep the TFSAs to the very end. So that's kind of my thinking when I add it all up in terms of a drawdown strategy with very uh, percentage withdrawal is taking a percentage in good years, lower percentage in bad years, but making sure I have diversified income sources to draw from each. Mm-hmm. That's a great answer. And for anybody listening or watching... Mark and I, we love this stuff, so we're getting into the weeds now. <laughs> so if you're very new to this and you're not really sure exactly how an RRSP works or TFSA works, all that, uh, I mean, totally understandable. It, it you know, took Mark and I have been at this for a long time now, so <laughs> it's um, don't feel like you have to fully know everything that we're talking about. But if you, anybody listening, watching, if you do have questions that, because, you know, we said something that you don't fully understand, um, definitely let me know. And what I'll do is I will do my best to cover them on a future ep- podcast episode, or, you know, we can have another, maybe another session. Where we talk about some of these things. Um, definitely, yeah, just, just let me know. Cause I don't want you, anybody that's new to this to f- get, ex- feel excluded or think that, okay, this is like, maybe over my head. This is this sounds way too complicated. It's really not. You just have to take get there gradually. So you learn little by little by little and you keep layering on top and eventually, you know, you re-listen to what Mark just said and says, Oh, that makes sense. That's so that's smart. And then you get excited like me because that's you know, you like the strategy. But but it's not like you're gonna get there overnight if you're just getting into all this personal finance, financial literacy. So just wanted to really throw that out. Um, so with that disclaimer, Mark, let's continue to geek out because I love this stuff. So <laughs> with with um in terms of drawing down your RRSPs first, uh, because you do want to decrease that liability, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. With that component, is your plan to, let's say, withdraw a max of around that 49000 range per year because that's where the lowest tax bracket cutoff is at the federal level? And so you take that money, you, you basically get to the lowest tax bracket, so you're taxed at that lowest rate. And then if you need more money on top of that, that's where your taxable dividends are coming in. That's where you maybe some of your TFSA, if you really want to, comes in. And then that way you're able to basically take out more than that, you know, that 49000 a year. But, um, you know, you're doing it in a tax efficient manner as opposed to jumping to the next uh, bracket. Is that what you're doing? That's exactly the plan, yeah. And I haven't really done the detailed math on exactly what exactly I have to take out of the RSP, but let's say 10, 15, maybe 20,000 per RSP account because my wife has one as well. So we'll be drawing from those accounts first, um, but basically do a, a slow, gradual drawdown of that RSP. So we're basically smoothing out taxes to the point where 
We're also meeting our income needs, our expense needs. So we need to obviously cover the basic needs, you know, food, clothing, shelter, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? The, the bottom pillar, uh, part of that pyramid. But we also have some wants as well. So by doing a slow draw down the RSPs, I'll be able to monitor how fast I can draw that down over the first few years. I'll be able to still live off some of the dividends from the taxable account. I'll probably have a little bit of part-time work coming in. I'll keep my pension intact for later on to avoid early withdrawal penalties. I'm way too young uh, right now to think about CPP and OAS, but I know those days are coming. And I, you know, I, I think what would be interesting for readers, I actually went through before the whole um, you know, fiasco with C here, I actually got some numbers. Um, and I think, you know, again, um, it'd be interesting for folks to hear this. So I'll just pull them up quickly. So if I take my CPP, so let's say I draw down my RSP, I have some taxable income coming from the from the taxable or dividend, uh, tax advantage income coming from the from the taxable account. I have a little bit of part time work. Those are you know three good income streams. If I rely on that for the early years of retirement, and I and I take my CPP at sixty, um, it looks like I'm about six to seven thousand a year, and so would my wife, right? So and that's not uncommon. That's probably average, right? Very average in terms of your years of contribution. If I take CPP and OAS at 65, okay, so OAS is now layered on, it bumps to about 17,000 a year, okay, which again, is probably not unrealistic. It's at least 11, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 per person if you've lived and worked in Canada. So get this, if I defy an OAS to age 70, and that's really based on maybe just working the next full few years full time, CPP and OAS combined jumped 1,000 per person. So combined, my wife and I could potentially, if we defer both to age 70, I'm not saying we will, assuming the $2020 today, it's about 49000 a year. And it's inflation protected. So getting back to what I was talking about earlier, the opportunities of having lots of different levers to pull, whether you invest in a taxable account, doesn't mean you have to, but the ability to draw down an RSP, the ability to potentially have TFSA, you don't need to have a company pension. I'm very fortunate, but maybe you have a part-time job. Maybe you have a side hobby. You like woodworking or doing other things. The ability to pull on different levers is, I think, really important in terms of a drawdown strategy. And so I would, I would encourage everybody to think about what kind of income sources you're going to have. And then it becomes more of a discussion with your fee-only planner or, you know, if you're really good at this stuff and you enjoy it inside and out, like, you know, some of us do, you can come up with some models where, you know, drawing down the RSP may make tax advantage sense and keeping TFSAs may make tax advantage sense just given the nature of the account. So, um, you know, I'll pause there, but I, I think, you know, understanding your income sources and what you need from what, and then playing around with some of those scenarios are, are hugely important asset decumulation strategies that people should think about. Mm-hmm. Can you list those numbers again, what it was if you didn't defer versus did defer to get the higher amounts? The audio cut out a little bit, I think, on your internet there. So oh, no problem. I, I just want to make sure people hear the difference of the amount that you guys can get annually by basically setting things proper up so in such a way that you are able to defer and get that guaranteed income for basically for the rest of your lives. Yeah, for sure, Cornell. So I think my CPP, assuming I work a couple more years full time, my CPP at 60, because you can't take OAS until 65 based on current rules, is about 7,000 or so a year, which is in line with, uh, within line of the average, you know, per month for, for most people who have worked and lived in Canada and contributed to the plan. 65, that number bumps up for CPP to about 10,000, a little over 10,000. So you can see about a $3,000 bump. 
And again, that's assuming I've stopped working in the next few years, right? The money will just uh, sit there and then the plan. And then OAS at 65 is about 7,000. So now you're up to 17,000 at age 65 for CPP and OAS. If I wait till 70 for both programs, it actually bumps up to 24,000. So you're looking at, on average, maybe a 40% bump when you average out CPP delays and OAS delays. You're looking at about a 40% bump, 17,000 to 24,000 if you delay CPP and OAS. I'm not saying certainly folks should uh, universally do that, but I think it's an option for people to consider if they've got those different levers to pull, RSPs, taxable money, maybe a pension plan, uh, maybe inheritance, other things that come through to provide cash flow or or portfolio value to people. Um, it's a, it's definitely an option I would I would I would think through and talk to your fee only advisor about or you know run some modeling yourself. For sure, yeah, you definitely want someone to do that analysis with you. Like even if you're um, can do it yourself, it's good to get a second opinion. I would say from a fee for service financial uh, planner. Because, yeah, it's a very significant move. Like you just said, it's a huge increase in pay. And that money is basically guaranteed money from the government, right? It's not it's not subject to the whims of the stock market, things like that. I mean, the government may change some rules and things like that depending how things go. But sure. it's, it's, it's a pretty secure thing with the CPP and OAS, at least with the way, the thing, the way things are currently in Canada. Um, and, and so it's definitely worth considering and really analyzing and really crunching the numbers as opposed to saying, okay, this is kind of complicated. I just want to take it as early as possible because who knows how long I'm going to live, right? Like there's people that just keep it that simple. And so I think it's, I'm happy you brought those numbers up just to encourage people to say, look, this isn't that simple of an answer. You really do want to get a holistic view of all your income sources, what you have. Can you defer it? Is it worth, because it is money that is guaranteed for the rest of your life. And it's and it grows and you get way more if you defer and so that may actually be the better option for you depending on your circumstances. So, um, yeah. So thanks for for bringing that up. Um, and then yeah. Then one one thing I wanted to add as well is you talked about the tax liability and why you're drawing down on your RRSP now so that you don't have this giant tax liability at the end. And for anybody that's maybe new to all of this, the the whole idea there is that. When like for something like OAS, basically, if you make too much money in retirement, uh, you in traditional retirement, they basically start clawing back your benefits, so you actually get less because your annual income is too high. That's what they do, and so what you want. And the thing is with the RSP is that you're basically forced to withdraw it and withdraw a certain percentage of your amount. And so what Mark is talking about and the whole sort of logic. And, and uh, feel free to jump in, Mark, if I'm you know if, if you have anything to add there. But the mm-hmm. whole sort of logic behind what Mark is doing is saying, I don't want to just leave my RRSP alone and not withdraw from it at all in retirement until I'm like 65 or whatever, because eventually I'm going to be forced to take out as a percentage of that. And if I haven't touched my RRSP at all, that RRSP has grown so massive that now the percentage that I'm forced to withdraw annually is actually very, very large. And that's actually going to bump Mark up into a higher tax bracket, which you obviously don't want. And so Mark is basically doing financial planning and using some really good foresight that, okay, if I don't touch my RSP at all, there's going to be hell to pay <laughs> from the tax angle <laughs> when things get older uh, if you just leave it alone. So let's start drawing some of this RSP gradually now and basically manage my tax bracket so I'm consistently staying ideally in the lowest tax bracket as opposed to getting buff- being forced to take it out later, taking out money you might not even need at that point and getting taxed like crazy on it, right? So uh, do you have anything yeah. to add there, Mark? Did I explain that? 
clearly enough? No, that was excellent. I, okay. I, I just, the only add-on I would say is, you know, certainly if you have a tax problem in retirement, and I've said this on my site many times, and assuming you have good health and your family has great, I mean, that's a great problem to have, right? Mm-hmm. But if you can, if you can optimize and work with your portfolio and, and draw down things in a certain tax efficient order, um, if you have the opportunity to do that, you, you probably should because you will pay less tax. So I just think those are things for people to think through. For sure. Yeah. And you're right. These are kind of problems. Oh, no, I have too much money that's being taxed. It's kind of a, yeah, I can see that being interpreted negatively. But I guess, you know, someone can think of it of, okay, I saved, let's say, $10,000 in taxes this year or whatever the case is. Okay. Well, you if, if you want, you can now take that and donate it to your favorite charity, for example. Correct. Right? You could do that or leave it to your kids or, or whatever, you know, do some good in the world with it if you want. You probably would rather take that ten grand and put it towards a charity than just saying, "Here, government, have the ten k, spend it however you please." I, I'm I'm pretty sure it's safe to assume you'll you'll be happier donating it to your favorite charity. I, I think that's, that's a very safe assumption. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> so, whether you like the government or not, I'm sure you like giving money to your favorite charity better. So I think that's safe favorite charities, assume. passing it to your kids, exactly, investing in their TFSA, go on the nice trip you've put off, whatever it may be. Uh, Hundred percent agree. Sure. So, just to finish talking about the very percentage withdraw. So, there there's certain percentages that you can use for that, right? Where you're taking a certain percent of your portfolio at that time, which makes it much different than the four percent rule. What percentage do you would you use if you are doing the very percentage withdraw? Because I've gone on the boggle. This is just me geeking out with you here. Mm-hmm. I've got on the boggleheads resources when it comes to variable percentage withdraw, and they've got some really cool information there. You know, spreadsheets. Some really smart people working on that stuff, and uh, I, I think the lowest one I saw was four percent, and which is like pretty nice because it's four um, percent for sure. But it's for someone that actually is doing more of like a traditional retirement. So if you're an early retiree, it's like okay, can I actually take out more than four percent? So I've been using four percent personally because that's the lowest that kind of went on their spreadsheet yeah. as a very percentage withdrawal. Uh, but yeah, what's what's your take on that? Have you looked into it at all? I've looked into a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't have the necessarily the numbers right in front of me right now, but I think fifties again, depending on the good years and bad years and the suggested withdrawal versus what you actually take out. And again, play with the calculator because it depends on your bonds and the like. But I think when you get to the mid, your mid fifties, like age fifty five, it's actually suggesting something like five point four percent, five point five. So I think people will be pleasantly surprised that again. Um, it's not the 4% rule. You can actually probably take out a little bit more in your 50s and a little bit more in your 60s. I think by the time you get to 70, it's 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 almost like you know a registered retirement income fund rules. Like you're looking at six, seven, eight percent. They want you to spend your money. Yeah. But again, the thinking with variable percentage withdrawal, as you know, is that it's it's allowing you to to live the life for the money you've saved. It's not designed for you to pass on massive amounts of generational wealth or anything else. So the beauty of the VPW method is based on your portfolio and what 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 actual returns are actually happening in the market. It's allowing you that financial flexibility to really spend a little bit more in your good years and a little bit maybe less in the bad years, such that you really don't have this massive 3x, 6x RSP value or anything else in your in your estate, you know, much, much later in life. And you know, for folks that are much more conservative and are never sure if they will uh, outlive their money, there's certainly other ways of going about it. But I would encourage people to look up VPW and play with the numbers a little bit because I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. For sure. I was very pleasantly surprised how high those withdrawal percentages got as you got older. I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, compared to just 
grudgingly sticking with 4% because that's what the 4% rule said. It, uh, yeah, well, yeah. once again, when I saw that inefficiency. And yeah, so just to give, um, if anybody is, is you know, trying to wrap their head around this and is new to all of it. So, you know, the big, it's important to understand the distinction between the 4% rule, like what you see in a lot of the media, a lot of the fire bloggers all there. You know, mm-hmm. the 4% rule comes up constantly. And so what that essentially is, is you're saying something like, okay, if I have a million dollars, then I'm going to take out 4% of that per year adjusted for inflation. So let's say $40,000 a year because that's for, you know, 4% of a, of a million. Correct. And I'm going to be every year, I'm only going to take out the 40,000 plus inflation, no matter how the markets do, whether it's a 40% decline in the markets or a 20%, you know, increase in the markets over the year, I'm still taking out the same amount. Even if my portfolio is $30 million, I'm still only taking out the 40, you know what I mean? So that's, that's what that is. And that's why Mark and I aren't, as big or where we have some issues with it because unless you like if you get unlucky you're like okay great but if you get like a more average or good scenario with sequence of returns you actually end up having more money than you can spend and now you're basically just kind of wasting it so or it's it's not efficient um versus the very percentage withdrawal we're talking about now and then when i said like four percent or mark saying when you get older it's like five percent or even more the reason the number is able to be so much higher than four percent is because you're not taking out four percent no matter what you're taking out like let's say it's what we're saying using four percent or five percent like mark said you're just taking out that percentage on whatever your portfolio value is at that time in that year so if let's say you're using four percent and your portfolio is a million bucks yeah you take out 40 grand but if it's let's say it your portfolio we had a massive decline your portfolio dropped 40 percent you know then you're taking out four percent of that decreased amount of 40%. So you're taking out a lot less. So the amount of money you get from your portfolio every year can actually fluctuate very wildly. And so that's one of the negatives of the very percentage of the drop because you don't have that level of stability. But the pro is that you you end up basically harvesting your, for a bad analogy, you end up harvesting your crops or whatever when the times are good. And when times are bad, or like you said, okay, maybe you don't take that Europe trip this year, you know what I mean, and so you're you're kind of doing it that way. Um, do you have anything to add there, Mark? I just want to clarify because I think that's a really common misconception people have between four percent rule and then some maybe think that's like the only way to do it, where it's definitely not. Yeah, no, you you've nailed it, and and really, if people can just think about the variable percentage withdrawal, if they just break that down, it's a it's withdrawing a variable percentage based on how the market is or isn't doing in any given year. So it, it is providing you with a lot of um, draw down, but but withdrawal flexibility based on how your portfolio is performing, whether it's lots of stocks or lots of bonds or anything in between. For sure, and that's why yeah, you talked about using the bucket strategy. How you have a cushion for instances where the markets are bad, and and I do the same thing. I have a bucket. I use the bucket strategy myself as well. I feel quite comfortable with that. And so, mm-hmm. for anybody listening, the the kind of reasoning there is, let's say, okay. You're, you're taking out 40,000 uh, 40, a year, 4% on your portfolio because your portfolio is a million bucks. But let's say that gets cut in half one year because we have like a you know 2008 financial crisis all over again. Well, maybe instead of before you were taking a 40K year, all of a sudden you're down to 20,000. You know, and that's a pretty big chunk to spend twenty thousand dollars less this year than you did last year. Not everyone feels comfortable with that, and so that's why. At least I don't want to speak for you, Mark, but at least for mm-hmm. me, that's why I have these extra buckets set up of money, of cash in a high interest savings account, so that when that storm hits, when we have the next two thousand eight financial crisis, I'm still okay 
just taking out that 20k and basically supplementing the rest of it with the money that I have on the you know in the in the you know in my cash cushion essentially. Exactly. It's a basically a, a modified or some form of cash wedge, and that's exactly my approach as well. Awesome, awesome. So let's talk about sequence of returns risk. I don't think we've really covered it too much. I don't know if everybody knows what, uh, especially if someone's new to it all. You know, why is that important? Can you talk about how you're dealing with it? You've kind of touched on it, but I want to make sure, you know, we're, we're covering a bit of the basics too. Yeah. So look at sequence returns as basically, you know, um, for those that maybe are not too familiar with it. It's really when you enter retirement or semi-retirement that I'm trying to embark on in a few years. It's that sequence. It's that it's that kind of near-term, you know, volatility, if you will, where if you have a bad year one year and then you have another bad year one year and then you have another bad year one year, um, especially if you're invested maybe highly in, in equities, that can have a really negative impact on what you draw down in your portfolio. So um, if you start with, it, like I said, we'll go back to the million dollar because it's a, it's a round number. It's fairly fairly easy for folks to, to kind of grapple with. You plan on taking 3.5, 4%, whatever the variable centers of law kind of calculator says, maybe it's 5.2, you've retired in your 50s. So you take out your you know your 52,000 or whatever it may be at 5.2% and you have, you know, equity markets tank, COVID, the markets did not recover from COVID. We're down 10% next year. Okay, well, your portfolio is now down 10% and you've taken out your 52. So now you're down quite a bit of money. Next year's another bad year. Now you're down maybe another 10% and the year after. So what, what the challenge with sequence of turn is, is in the early years of retirement, it can have a very long standing negative impact on your portfolio. So you'll want to you'll wanna basically work with a withdrawal strategy, maybe a little bit more conservatively in my opinion, in the early years of retirement, because drawing less from your capital is going to provide you with probably a more realistic chance of having that capital come back and eventually grow again. So think about the, the Great Recession. Think about maybe the tech bubble uh, for folks that uh, were investors in, in the 90s, late 90s. You know, we saw some very significant declines and, and very challenging times in the equity markets, but they did come back. And in some cases, they came roaring back. But you can't predict when that's going to happen. So by allowing yourself to be a little bit more conservative in your drawdown, meaning how much your income you're actually taking out from your portfolio and your capital in the early years of retirement, it's a bit of a hedge to make sure you 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 prolong that longevity or you know avoid that longevity risk in terms of outliving your money or drawing money too soon. So you know certainly we can't predict the the future, but there's a lot of models. Uh, there's actually some free calculators I think, um, FireCalc and probably a few others. I think Portfolio Visualizer, maybe a few more out there that allow people to to go through the sequence of returns risk and say, hey, if I started retiring at this year and I want my money to last 30 or 40 years, what's going to be the impact of that bad sequence of returns on my portfolio and how is it going to impact my income level? Conversely, um, there could be very good sequence of returns, right? We saw a massive bull market coming out of the, the Great Recession, right, 10 or 11 years ago. So, it can work both ways. The, the, the challenge with our future is it's always unknown. Nobody has a magic crystal ball. Uh, so our challenge is to, is to think about the levers you can pull uh, as part of your withdrawal strategy, the conservative nature maybe in the early years of retirement and maybe having some bonds or some cash wedge or things that you could, you could maneuver and, and use in the early years of retirement. And really after the first five or 10 years, if you've survived that, and you've 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 kind of done your your drawdown. Your your portfolio is running fine. You're spending your income that you've worked so hard for. 
I think you're largely over the hump, but your first, your biggest risk, I think, in early retirement, summer retirement is really those first five to 10 years. What can happen with that portfolio value? And that's why you have cash wedges. That's why you have GIC ladders. That's why you might have bonds because the equity market can do and and will do crazy things. You just don't know when they're going to happen. For sure. Yeah, it's all about, okay, if the market just went down 40%, to not be forced to sell your equities when they're down 40% because you need that money to put food on the table. Uh, Hence, having all these extra, like why Mark and I like the bucket strategy, so that if something that happens, you're Mm -hmm. never in a situation, and having a side income as well, like what you're doing, what I'm doing now too, just to have that so that if things go really bad, you don't need to sell those equities while they're temporarily down 40%, 20%, whatever. Yeah. And then eventually the market goes back up and okay, great. But whoops, you never got to ride the wave up on all your investments because you sold them at a bottom so you could you know, go grocery shopping, right? So that's the whole kind of idea I would say behind it. Mark, the, thank you for explaining that. Just before I forget, um, you mentioned that there was a, specific, a calculator or a resource you were using for the very variable percentage withdrawal strategy to crunch some numbers. Is that something that's on your site or is that something that you found somewhere that you... uh, Yeah, so uh, I think Boggleheads has it on their wiki. So it's basically a a wiki, right? It's a knowledge board. Um, I do have a link to it on my my site. Um, So if you type in variable percentage withdrawal, my own advisor, it'll come up at the top. You'll read a couple of my posts about that. I have a direct link to the calculator for that. Um, And then again, there's some, some, you know, very interesting DIY like early retirement kind of fire calculators. So fire calc, I believe, F-I-R-E-C-A-L-C. And then there's portfolio visualizer where you can do a bunch of back testing. So again, it just gives you something to, uh, to play with as well, right? And get your head wrapped around some of these concepts. You mentioned you have those links on the site. We can link them in the uh, the notes underneath the video too. And yeah, you mentioned um, Portfolio Visualizer was one of them. That one does like the Monte Carlo simulations we're talking about as well. Correct. Um, and then uh, FireCalc, I think you said, right? FireCalc we yeah. have as, as well. And actually yeah. Vanguard uh, USA has a pretty cool, uh, how much, do, you know, how long does your money last kind of thing. Okay. And again, you can input some stuff there. So nice. um, happy to send those links to... Uh, to folks at the summit and then uh, we can put them in the notes and stuff because again uh, great tools to play around with all free and it just gets your head wrapped around some of these things awesome awesome yeah one other one that i've used was uh, c fire sim uh, just the letter c and then yep. fire sim. that was another one so yeah i find those are the three f- uh, good free ones that i found myself using over and over again was the portfolio visualizer c fire sim um and then uh, fire calc uh those ones as well so uh yeah, yeah so no thanks thanks for suggesting those i'll have to um Make a note to make sure to remember to insert them at the bottom of this this talk. Uh, and then linking to your page as well where you talk about them uh, so people can check out your site and see the resources you have there. Um, awesome. So last time we were on the podcast, uh, I think you mentioned about potentially moving away from dividend stocks in retirement and focusing on just a total return approach and maybe migrating your dividend stocks to more passive broad market index ETS, basically what I do. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? We talked about it a couple of years ago, right? And I am gravitating slowly towards the uh, a little bit more of a total return uh, approach. Um, I do have, and I probably always will have my mix of Canadian and US stocks. So I, I tend to have uh, at home here for folks that are interested, you know, um, some Canadian banks, some Canadian pipeline companies, um, some Canadian telco companies, some Canadian utility companies, those tend to be where I gravitate to, but I do own a few others. US, I'm, I'm mostly focused on, uh, on healthcare um, and some tech such as Microsoft. Um, but I am gravitating more towards, you know, lower cost or low cost for that matter, US ETFs and, and the odd Canadian ETF that tracks the, uh, the US market. 
And I think the reason for that is just extra diversification and I'm going to get the growth kicker. I, I can't predict when Amazon's going to shoot up. I, I can't predict when Tesla's going to enter the Dow um, 30. Um, so I just feel, and I've always felt this way, there's a benefit of me owning a, um, you know, total return ETFs where there's no stock selection. I pay minuscule money management fees. I don't have to worry about really too much rebalancing, if anything, because I've got my big bond and I just invest in equities. So to me, it's it's basically you know a fairly easy, passive way to get returns, but it's also a very lazy, simple way uh, to invest and take all the emotional decision making totally out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as you get older, who knows? Maybe you won't be as keen to read financial statements of <laughs> companies and picking up dividend stocks and things like exactly. that. Exactly. I don't have to read through a forty-page prospectus on anything. I can just put it into you know fifteen hundred stocks for three basis points, and I don't worry about it. For sure. Yeah. Other than Warren Buffett, I. I have trouble picturing, you know, someone that's, I don't know how old he is now, but anybody, let's say in their 80s, you know, looking at the annual, reading the annual reports and analyzing, you know, the income statements and balance sheets of companies before investing in the, in their, you know, to get their dividends, that kind of thing. So for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to, just before we finish off here, I'd like to stress to everybody watching and, and listening that when it comes to living off your portfolio in early retirement or early semi-retirement, there isn't really one silver bullet solution that's going to be perfect for everyone. And so a good process is that when you are approaching your financial independence number, start learning about all the different ways that you can structure your portfolio for your early retirement. And then basically pick and or modify one that you think is a good fit for you. So you see Mark's put a lot of thought into how he does it. It's a little bit different than mine, but there's also a lot of similarities. So it's kind of like once you have that foundation and you've educated yourself on this, you know, you kind of make the tweaks necessary so that it better fits your circumstances. And then I think it's a good idea to, you know, to share that with a good fee-for-service financial planner. So somebody that's not going to try to sell you investments to get a commission, just someone that you pay like a flat rate, just like you would a lawyer or a professional accountant, you know, and then because you really do want that second set of eyes on something like this before you pull the early, before you pull the early retirement trigger or the early semi-retirement trigger. I know when I, before we, you know, handed in our resignations for our jobs and all that, I remember despite me being a total nerd about this stuff, I still had two fee-for-service financial planners crunch all my numbers independently. So I, I didn't, you know, I, I did all the math myself because I have the software, I have all the models. I had them do it anyway, just to make sure, you know, cause get a second set of eyes just in case, because it is a big deal, right? And you don't need to get two financial planners, but like, cause I'm just, I'm just crazy, but <laughs> I just do want to stress that this is, this is a big deal. And there's so many optimizations and so many ways to tweak things. You really do want that professional looking, you know, at it from like a, you know, outside view, right? Because you're so deep in it, maybe you miss something and they have experiences that maybe you don't have. Uh, do you agree with that approach, Mark? What are your thoughts? I totally do. And I'm going to go down the path and I've actually started thinking about that and doing that myself. So I'm actually going to be writing a little bit of my own case study working with, uh, you know, maybe a fee-only planner now just because I know I'm a couple years out and I want to be sure. And, you know, to your point, I have a bias to owning some dividend-paying stock. My returns have been quite well. I've been basically, you know, because of large cap companies that pay dividends. They tend to be at the top of the index. So they've returns. I'm pretty much on par uh, with all the returns that those uh, big companies that make up the index have. So I'm not lagging as a DIY investor. But the reality is, is there's tax optimization strategies. There's estate planning strategies that I'm just not fully versed on yet. And I tend to be. So I would think a, a smart move is, you know, like you say, go pay like you do with a lawyer or any 
person that you know has your best interests in mind to get an unbiased or objective opinion. And maybe the numbers are perfectly right that what you've done, but you have some confidence going in that you've, you've done some due diligence. And um, if nothing more, it makes you sleep much better at night knowing that you've got someone that's been watching your back a little bit and, and knows that uh, you've put a good plan together. For sure. Yeah, because maybe you did all the numbers right, but maybe there's one question you forgot to ask yourself just because you aren't a financial planner that does it professionally. And then they ask you those questions and you think, oh right, maybe maybe I should actually, you know, factor that in. Like what? So there's, there's so many components, right? And I, I think it's good to have someone else to say, okay, let's just make sure you didn't miss any holes, so that you are properly covered, right? Um, totally. Yeah. So 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 on that case, uh, on that um, note, I wanted to thank you for coming on again this year, Mark, and tell us more about where we can find you and learn more from you, as well as where we can go to to follow your semi-retirement uh, journey. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Cornell. So, you know, obviously, a uh, huge pleasure and, and uh, you know, thanks for doing this to you. I, I do appreciate uh, talking about all these things, sharing what I know, but also learning from other people. So on that note, folks can follow me at uh, my site. It's called My Own Advisor. Uh, so it's myownadvisor.ca. Uh, I post there, like I said, probably about once a week or so. Um, it could be things that I've seen in the market, uh, trends that I've seen in the industry, just general perspectives on any money stuff, but I also share my financial journey about what I'm investing in, why I'm doing it, uh, how our income is coming together for that semi-retirement dream of ours in a few years, and any other things that can kind of come top of mind. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty active there. I think uh, I may have just passed 7,000 followers or something there on the Twitter machine. So I enjoy interacting with people there and, and seeing what's there. And then, uh, yeah, on my website, I've got lots of books, uh, links to media, um, been fortunate to be on Build Wealth Canada podcast and and uh, other podcasts, um, you know, including uh, some of late. And so I've got lots of resources on my helpful sites, media page that folks want to check out and, and hear from me. Um, so I encourage you to check it out, subscribe and, uh, and follow along and look forward to seeing you on the site. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on and thanks for the Build Wealth Canada podcast plug. <laughs> and uh, yeah, th thanks again for coming on, Mark. It's, it's been great. Uh, and, and yeah, I look, I look forward to having another interview on the podcast again uh, and, and as well having you back on the summit next year as well. So uh, th thanks again for sharing your experience and your expertise with everyone. Me too. Thanks again. All right. Take care. Cheers. All right. Thanks for tuning in. In case you missed it, this was just one of the 30 talks that I had on this year at the online Canadian Financial Summit. So to join me for free at the next one, all you have to do is go to buildwealthcanada.ca and sign up and you are on that homepage by just entering your email. By doing that, you'll be put on the mailing list to get free tickets to next year's summit right as I release them. And as an extra bonus, when you sign up for free, you'll also immediately get my guide on the top investment and personal finance tools that I personally use here in Canada to help you optimize your own finances and investments. So that link again is buildwealthcanada.ca. Sign up anywhere there on the front page for free tickets to next year's online event and to immediately receive the full guide on the top investment and personal finance tools that I personally use here in Canada. And don't forget to get your free guide on the top ETFs in Canada, where I go into what I invest in and why. And to get that, just sign up for a free savings account with the bank that I use, EQ Bank, where they have one of the highest interest rates that I've been able to find in Canada. And at the time of this recording, they are as much as 40 times higher compared to some of the other major banks out there. Plus, you get unlimited Interact e-transfers, unlimited transactions, all for free. So to get the free account and my ETF guide, you have to sign up through this special link, which is Build Wealth. Canada.ca slash EQ. That's buildwealthcanada.ca.
ca slash the letter e the letter q then send me any confirmation email that you get from them after opening an account to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and i'll email you the entire etf guide for free and lastly don't forget to get your free one-year canadian money saver magazine subscription by checking out the etf and stock research and answers over at five i research to get that just go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash research sign up for the free five i trial at the link there's no credit card required or anything like that and you'll be sent the code to get the free one-year digital subscription to canadian money saver magazine canada's largest personal finance and investing magazine so that link again to get the free subscription is buildwealthcanada.ca slash research All right, so I hope you find all that helpful. Enjoy the bonuses, enjoy the free resources. Stay healthy out there, stay safe out there, and I wish you and your family all the best. Take care, bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.